invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Acts as we're taking a, a, just a break from Leviticus to celebrate Pentecost Sunday. And we'll be look, reading together Acts chapter 2, and we'll look at the first 13 verses. If you remember, uh, chapter 2 uh, can be divided into three sections, really, concerning Pentecost. You first have the event itself in the first 13 verses, and then you have the explanation of the event as uh, Peter uh, speaks from verse 14 through 41, and then you see the effect of the event in verse 42 through the end of the chapter. You see what kind of church is formed uh, by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the event itself, verses 1 through 13. Let's give our attention to God's Word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Lord Jesus, we come now and ask that you would teach us your word by your spirit, that we would understand the things of God and understand, Lord, in that, how blessed we are and, uh, and our calling in this world as those who belong to you by the power of the spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There are certain events in your life that uh, fundamentally alter and transform your life. Uh, Things like uh, getting married, Uh, your your life is radically changed. Things like having children, Um, things like being converted. Uh, When you are converted, you are a a new person. everything, Everything changes, you have new life. Uh, One of the most dramatic life-altering experiences that we have, though we don't remember it, is the experience of being born, uh, where we leave the the safety and warmth, protection uh, of of the mother's womb, and suddenly we're thrust out into uh, this cold, loud, um, dangerous world, and uh, we respond appropriately, we we cry. It's it's, uh, being born is is a radical, life-transforming event. Well, Pentecost is maybe best likened to uh, birth, and yet not birth into something cold and dark and dangerous, but birth into something magnificent, something new and glorious. Uh, The the, uh, events of Pentecost Sunday is really the birth of the New Testament church, and and it is as radical and transformative as physical birth. Uh, Just as um, 
breath in a little baby signals the new life, the life of the child. So the breath of God on Pentecost Sunday uh, signals the birth of the new church. It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of the events that we read about here in Acts chapter 2. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the catalyst for every aspect of the life of the New Testament church. And without the Spirit, the New Testament church would have never come into existence at all. Uh, John Stott writes this, he says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. No understanding without the Spirit who teaches the truth. No fellowship with the unit, without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from His fruit. And no effective witness without His power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. The church without the Spirit is dead. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 10, the Spirit is life. The Spirit is life. And this morning, we want to look at what happened then at Pentecost, uh, on Pentecost Sunday so that we might understand what it means to be a New Testament Christian and the New Testament church. Uh, let's look first, we'll look first at the setting and then the signs and then the significance of those signs. So those will be our three points, the setting and the, significant, the, the signs and the significance. Uh, I'd like to first look at um, what happened just through the lens of uh, sort of a historical perspective, a historical redemptive perspective. The, uh, while we uh, identify Pentecost as a Christian holiday, it was, of course, first of all, a Jewish holiday. Uh, the Jews had been celebrating Pentecost for almost 1,500 years. It had been commanded uh, to them by God uh, after they came out of Egypt. And so you can read about it in Exodus, Exodus chapter 23. And it is only as we grab, uh, grasp the meaning of the, uh, the Jewish holiday that we'll get a better understanding of what Pentecost means as a Christian one. The Jewish celebration of Pentecost had two um, aspects to it. One was agricultural. That was maybe its primary aspect. So in Exodus chapter 23, when God assembles uh, the Israelites together at Mount Sinai, he, he commands them to have three festivals, three har- uh, agricultural festivals. Uh, because they're going to depend right, on God providing for them. They're not going to be in Egypt where they have a Nile River and they can just be self-reliant. They're going to be in a land that doesn't get, have a Nile. They're going to be relying on God. And these festivals are going to be ways that they come to God when they plant, they come to God when they begin the harvest, and they come to God at the end of the harvest. Pentecost is the middle one. It's called the Harvest of First Fruits or the Feast of Harvest. And it's, uh, it's an, uh, a time when the Israelites would gather together to thank God for the first fruit, the harvest beginning, and trust Him for all that is to follow. It was also called Pentecost, which means 50, because uh, this command or this celebration is, uh, took place 50 days after Passover. So um, that's the first and maybe primary meaning of the Jewish holiday. But there was a second then um, significance attached to it, the historical significance of God coming to Israel at Mount Sinai to give them the law. And um, this was believed to have happened 50 days after the, the, uh, the Exodus. 
And so they celebrated Pentecost as the time when God gave the law to Moses there at Mount Sinai. Well, those two aspects of the Jewish uh, holiday are both fulfilled and easily observed in the Christian holiday. If you keep reading in chapter 2, you'll see that Pentecost is the first fruits of the harvest of souls in the gospel age. It's the, it's the beginning of God's great gospel harvest. As 3,000 men, and we don't know how many women and children included in that, but a, a great number of people are brought to faith in a single day. It's the first fruit of the, uh, of the massive ingathering of, of, of the gospel as, as God will be now uh, gathering his countless elect through the gospel mission. So it's a, it's a Pentecost um, is a Christian celebration of first fruits, but it's also uh, an experience of law giving because at Mount Sinai, as you remember, God wrote the law with his finger on the tablets of stone. But he promises in Jeremiah 31 that there will be a day when he writes the law uh, on human hearts. And that'll be the, the, the new covenant age. And that's exactly what you find here. God writing his law on human hearts so that as Peter preaches the word of God, um, they are cut to the heart. They are uh, convicted of their sin and they're converted to faith in Jesus Christ. That is, that's simply and purely God writing his law on a human heart. You know this from personal experience. Uh, if, you, if you've been converted uh, and you remember when you were not a converted person and how little care you had, how little concern you had for anything dealing with God or Christianity. But then something happened. Someone talked to you or you, and, and uh, suddenly things started to make sense. But it was the spirit spirit that was writing the law of God in your heart and suddenly uh, the reality of your sin and your need for grace suddenly became real. Well, that's, that's what the spirit does. And so the, um, the uh, day of Pentecost we have here in the Jewish celebration insight into God's mission and method in this gospel age. The Holy Spirit was sent precisely to gather God's elect to saving faith by writing the truth of God on their heart. And we have there then also then the charter and mandate of the New Testament church. This is why we exist. This is why we're here. We'll talk more about that in a moment, to be engaged in the mission of God. Well, that's the historical redemptive context. Let's look now in Acts chapter 2 at the immediate context. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. Uh, we know from Acts chapter 115 that there are about 120 identified uh, believers, followers of Jesus Christ, uh, and they are doing uh, what Jesus had commanded them to do. Jesus had told them in Luke 24, 49, uh, I'm going to send the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's been 50 days since Jesus was raised from the dead been 10 days since Jesus ascended into heaven and told them to stay in the city until they received power from on high. And so they are doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. That's the nature of a disciple. They were waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. And they were together on that Sunday morning, on Pentecost Sunday, praying and worshiping, and suddenly it happened. It must have been an overwhelming, frightening, exhilarating moment. As the Spirit 
was suddenly present in power. Luke tells us that there there were three tangible evidences uh, of the Spirit's coming. Uh, The sound of wind, uh, tongues like fire, and speaking in other languages. And they're all highly instructive. Let's look then secondly at the signs. Suddenly, verse 2, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Notice it is not the sound of a mighty rushing wind, but a sound like a mighty rushing wind. In other words, whatever was making the sound, it wasn't wind. It was something else. Something that sounded like a hurricane or a tornado. If you've ever had that experience, uh, or even a a severe windstorm, uh, you sense the power of wind as maybe your whole house starts to shake and rattle. The Um, The entire house is filled with this overwhelming sound of a rushing, mighty wind. Sot points out that, again, the sound signifies the power of the Spirit which uh, Jesus had promised to them. The word, um, maybe you know this, but the the word for wind and breath and spirit, it's all the same word, both in the Hebrew... And in the Greek, so ruach in the Hebrew and pneuma in the Greek, one word that can cover, uh, that means wind or breath or spirit in its context. And um, this mighty rushing wind is really then the divine breath of God. And, and is certainly meant to remind us of the Holy Spirit in the beginning of time hovering over the abyss, the darkness, the void, over the waters, and with sovereign power, speaking, breathing a whole cosmos into being. You see, on Pentecost Sunday, the Spirit of God hovers over a dark and ruined world and began breathing a new world into existence by the power of Christ's resurrected life. That's what's happening. The Spirit of God hovering over a ruined world, breathing a new world into existence by the resurrected power of Christ. This is is nothing less than new creation, literally and truly new creation taking place. Paul will speak of a Christian if anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. Well, Well, this is the beginning of Jesus making everything new by his sovereign resurrection might. The sound communicates the power of God now at work in a new, brand new, and final way. We have the secondly, the tongues as of fire, verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Uh, in the Old Testament, fire is, is uh, almost always a sign of the presence of God. So uh, if you remember Moses in the burning bush, he sees this, this bush burning but not being consumed. It was, the, it was God who was present there and says, Moses, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. Uh, when God appears on Mount Sinai, there's fire and, and smoke. Uh, when, the, uh, when God led Israel through the wilderness, there's a pillar of fire that goes before them. When the tabernacle is, is dedicated, the, that pillar of fire comes and rests over the tabernacle. 
signifying the presence of God there in that place. Well, that's exactly what we find happening here. The, the tongues of fire, as of fire, represent the presence of God. Whereas once it was over the tabernacle in general, now on each head... Every person, in a sense, being a tabernacle of God, which is exactly what the, uh, the apostles Paul will say, don't you know? Your temple of, the Holy, uh, of God, that the Holy Spirit dwells within you, that, that God has become present in a brand new radical way so that the New Testament church can say, in a way the Old Testament church never could, God himself is with us. We can say that in a new way. God is with us in a... Well, in, in a new way, in a more um, a powerful, intimate, purposeful way. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Just for now, uh, recognize that uh, the sound of wind represents the power of God, of Christ. Uh, the, the fire represents the presence of God, of Christ. And finally then, the tongues, which represent purpose. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, this is the sign that uh, Luke spends the most time explaining. Um, this is um, the sign that you know, in, in uh, the charismatic world gets a lot of attention, speaking in other tongues. But we don't want to miss the, the point of this. That uh, What's happening, you see, is that as the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples of Jesus Christ begin immediately proclaiming the gospel. So, so they, they wait for the power that Jesus had promised to give to them, and when it comes, they immediately begin to do what Jesus had commanded them. All authority and power has been given unto me, therefore, as you go, make disciples. The great commission, you see, is, uh, is underway immediately when the Holy Spirit comes, and only when the Holy Spirit comes. But that great commission begins in the most astonishing way. These 120 Jews, most of them not from Jerusalem. These are Galileans. These are, these are people from the backwater of northern Judea, um, a, an uneducated part of the world. And suddenly they're speaking in foreign languages, and that stuns uh, those who've gathered, verse 6, at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished. Notice they were bewildered because they heard these people talking in their language. They're amazed and astonished because it's Galileans who are doing the talking. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And so it is specifically the fact that God is using these backwater, uh, uneducated hicks from Galilee uh, that catches the attention of, of uh, the crowds. Um, every small town, if you're from a small town, you know this, you, but every small town has a local gathering place for the locals. Um, maybe it's a bar, but usually it's a restaurant. It depends on, I suppose, what kind of town you're from. But uh, in Coopersville, that place was called the, the Randall House. And there the local farmers and businessmen would gather together um, and catch up on the latest news and particularly the ripest scandal. In fact, my uncle used to call it the scandal house. <clears throat> Very few of them had more than a high school education. Um, the grammar was coarse. The vocabulary was, uh, should we say, earthy. 
It was, it, was, uh, it was barn sort of yard language. And um, now imagine the astonishment of the other patrons in the restaurant, in the town itself, if these men began suddenly speaking fluently and earnestly in Russian and Italian and Chinese and French. Uh, it would be frightening as well as, as astonishing. You wouldn't, it wouldn't just be a curious, like, that's really cool. Uh, you would clearly have the sense that these things don't fit. Something extraordinary is happening. I know these guys, they don't know Chinese. Well, it's certainly, you see, that got the attention of the multitudes. And so the pressing question of the crowd is, what in the world is going on? And the answer is, the world is being brought together under the ministry of the gospel. That's what's going on. Uh, we have here a list of, of nations, um, and it, is, uh, it really encompasses the, the known world of that day if you lived in the Middle East. And so you have uh, all these different people groups. Uh, you have three different continents represented, Africa, Asia, Europe. You have all the descendants. Um, so Noah had three sons, right, from which came the whole human race, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, all of them are represented here. This is the world, in a sense, being brought together. And scholars rightly point out that this is an undoing of the Tower of Babel. Boys and girls, you, you remember the, the story of the Tower of Babel when uh, all the people spoke one language and they got together to build this mighty, magnificent tower to exalt themselves and to cast God from his throne. That was the point. And so God, in judgment, confused the languages and in doing so, scatters the nations. But now God, in grace, is undoing that judgment, God in grace now is gathering the nations as suddenly the language barrier by the power of the Holy Spirit has been crossed. And so you have this wonderful multicultural, multi-ethnic crowd all gathered in Jerusalem, all uh, professing Jews or proselytes. They're, they're learning, they're coming, they're Greeks who are interested. And they've come to celebrate a Jewish holiday and suddenly they find themselves in the middle of a Christian one. And they're amazed and they're perplexed and they're bewildered and they're asking each other, what does this mean? Which, of course, is when Peter speaks up and explains what it means. But we can draw already some of the significance of Pentecost. What does it mean? Let me give you just a few things, three things. First of all, it means the dawning of a new era. You see, Pentecost was not just something that happened to 120 lucky people uh, a long time ago in Jerusalem. It is a truly cosmic event that inaugurates a new era in the history of the world. Uh, people will often ask uh, or wonder, what is the difference between the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? It's a good question, and it's not easy to answer. We read in the Old Testament the Spirit was clearly active. Men would be filled with the Spirit, particularly the prophets, and, and, and in the Spirit would, would accomplish their ministry. But the Spirit, and anyone who believed, of course, would have to have the work of the Spirit in some way in order to be able to believe. And yet the Old Testament is, um, the Spirit seems very constrained to one people group, the Jews, and specifically to the ordained leaders 
That's where the, the Spirit seems to be primarily evident. Well, in the New Testament, that all blows open. Uh, Derek Thomas gives this uh, illustration, which I, think, which I think is helpful. He says, picture a huge dam for hydroelectric power under construction, like the Aswan High Dam on the Nile, uh, 375 feet high, 11,000 feet across. Egypt's president, Nasser, commissioned it in 1953. When it was finally completed, an elaborate ceremony was held when all 12 turbines, with their 10 billion kilowatt-hour capacity, were unleashed with enough power to light every city in Egypt. The point is that during the lengthy period of construction, the Nile River wasn't completely stopped. Even as the reservoir was filling, part of the river was allowed to flow past. The country folk downstream depended on it. They drank it, they washed in it, they watered their crops, and, and it turned their mill wheels. But on the day when the reservoir broke through the turbines, a power was unleashed that spread far beyond the few folks downriver and brought possibilities they had only dreamed of. Pentecost was like that. Before Pentecost, the river of God's Spirit blessed the people of Israel and was their very life. But after Pentecost, the power of the Spirit spread out to light the whole world and with unimagined power. Pentecost changed everything. Friends, we live in the era that uh, is rightfully called the age of the Holy Spirit. We exist by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is the creation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the power and the presence and the purpose that we, that we just talked about, that's all for the church and for the believer today. Uh, and, and Peter makes that point in Joel too. So he'll say, right, the, in, in the last days, God prophesies through Joel in the last days that the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. And sons and daughters are going to receive the Spirit and, and, and proclaim the gospel uh, by the power of the Spirit. And there's going to be a, a new power then unleashed in the world, the power of the Holy Spirit as God himself is present in the church and the church is engaged in the mission of the gospel. So that's the first significance. It is the dawning of a new era. An era that will not, there's nothing left in the history of redemption except the coming of Jesus Christ. This is the last age of the history of the world, which is why the apostles will say that we live in the last days. These are the last days. The only thing remaining is the conclusion as Christ returns. The second thing is the presence of Christ. So we've already noted that the tongues of fire represent the presence of God. But we can be more specific than that. Because Pentecost isn't just the presence of God. It is explicitly the presence of Jesus, the presence of Christ. Uh, Richard Gaffin, in his excellent little book, Perspectives on Pentecost, makes the point that the coming of the Holy Spirit is specifically the coming of Christ to His church. He says the gift of the Spirit is nothing less than the gift of Christ Himself to the church. Remember, this is what Jesus had told His disciples. When He told them He was going to leave and go and be with the Father, He also told them uh, in the Great Commission, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I think subconsciously we can hear that as though Jesus is saying, um, I will be with you again at the end of the age. And that now that maybe the sense that we have of the church is that Jesus isn't here. He's somewhere else. And of course, he is physically in the presence of God. He's in heaven. Right? We know that. 
And yet, Jesus didn't say, I will be with you again at the end of the age. He said, I am with you now, even until the end of the age. He wants us to understand He is with us. Well, how is He with us? And the answer is, by the Spirit. So Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. And so that means that Pentecost is not just the affirmation that the Spirit is with us, but the declaration that Christ is with us in all of His loving, saving, preserving, mission-accomplishing power. I love this quote by Gaffin. He says, We need to see the absolute congruence between the work of the exalted Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit is not some addendum to the work of Christ. It is not some sphere of activity that goes beyond or supplements the work of Christ. Rather, the coming of the Spirit brings to light not only that Christ has lived and has done certain things, but that He now lives and is now at work in the church. That's a wonderful, astonishing thought. Pentecost tells us that Jesus is present with us. Jesus is here. That the He's here by His Spirit. He's here through the Spirit. But He's here. The Spirit is communicating to us the presence of Jesus. I'd like you to just think about what that might mean for us as a church, what it might mean for you as a person. We have maybe vague ideas of Jesus being present because He's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. Well, that's not what this is about. This is Jesus present intentionally, personally, powerfully in order to move us um, and in his gospel mission and towards our eternal home. That's what Pentecost means. That's what the Holy Spirit has come to communicate to us. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be in the presence of Jesus Christ or Jesus in your life. Jesus living with you, dwelling with you, tabernacling in that sense with you by his Spirit. It's a, pro- a profound thought. And it moves us to our last, which is uh, the gospel mission then of the church. Pentecost is the beginning of Christ's glorious gospel harvest in the world. A 3,000 men, who knows how many women and children, are, are brought under the very first sermon, the, new, the first New Testament sermon, the first fruits of the Christian church in the gospel age. And it, it, just, it just reinforces that the Spirit is poured out to make the church a witnessing community. Jesus tells his disciples, stay in Jerusalem because they're from Galilee. Their tendency would just be to head back home. No, I want you to stay in Jerusalem because I have a a, a mission for you, which is the Great Commission. And you won't be able to do that mission until you've received power from on high. And after you receive power from on high, you will be equipped, fully equipped to move into the mission, which is exactly what happens. And that's the, really the story of the book of Acts. The church being empowered, now engaged in the mission. Not just the apostles and teachers, they certainly, but the church as the church engaged 
in the mission. The Spirit is given to make the church a witnessing community. The Spirit is poured out to make the church the means by which Christ will gather those He died to save. He's not doing it some other way. Jesus' means, His method of accomplishing His his mission is the church. Through the proclamation of the gospel, through the preaching of the word, through the loving engagement of God's people in all the spheres that God has placed you, in your homes, at work, uh, when you're at the park, involved in the community. This is how Jesus accomplishes his mission. Let me give you one little illustration to make this point. I was visiting Connie Tucker this week. And she told me again the story of her conversion. Uh, I, have, I have her permission to share it uh, with you. Um, Connie was a police officer uh, with the, the city of Grand Rapids, right Connie? I believe it was the city of Grand Rapids. And so she was uh, on duty. She was in her mid-30s. Life was, was very hard. Did not know the Lord. And uh, she was sitting in her cruiser and another, she was sitting and another officer came this way. And so they began, uh, he began a conversation with her just face-to-face sitting in their cruisers. And this man finally said to Connie, Connie, give me your hand. And so she did. And that man began praying for her. And as he prayed, Connie says, the light of God broke through. And she became a new creation. And she went to church the very next Sunday, and she she, um, began to study the Bible. And it was the beginning of a whole new life for her. I asked Connie, why did that officer do that? And this is what she said. He saw that I was very down and sad. Friend, do you know any people who are very down and sad in your world? Have you ever thought of reaching out your hand and saying, could I pray for you? Do you realize the power that could have if we would trust the Lord, rely on His Spirit, trust that the mission Jesus gave to the church belongs to us. You see, the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost in order to make us missionaries. As the church, each in our own way, we're not all going to have the same gifts and abilities, but we all have the same calling. And as the church, to reach out our hand into this community, noticing the people particularly who are sad, and downcast and oppressed, burdened by the trials of life, heartbroken, to reach out and, and pray with them and pray for them and, and invite them into our lives. Jesus, you see, gave the Holy Spirit, friends, to make us a mission church. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. It's the kind of church I'm sure you want. It's what we could be. It's what we can be. It's what we are in so many ways already. And yet... When I look into the future of of what God could do with Harvest Church, this just seems to be such an evident road where he could lead us. I'm so glad we're calling Adrian to come and help us with that. But, But Adrian's just coming to help. He's not coming to do. He's coming to help us, um, to help equip us and to motivate us, to move us. But let's pray together that the Holy Spirit would do what only the Spirit can do that we become a church with a burden for lost people, that we notice the people who are downcast and sad, and that with the love of Jesus Christ pouring from our hearts, we, we, 
ask to pray with them and we, we speak to them about the hope and the joy that could be theirs in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, that you can move us as a church in spite of our, our fears, in spite of what we're comfortable with and what we know. Lord, you could move us by your Spirit to love in a new way, to be bold in a new way, to engage our community in a new way because we understand that the power of and the presence of Jesus Christ is with us and we, and we delight in that truth. And Father, I, I pray that we would trust you and that whatever cynicism and skepticism and unbelief and fear would be in our heart today, that you would, Lord, remove it from our heart for those are all, Lord, from the, from the evil one and not, not from the Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we would, we would have the joy of seeing you do what only you can do in our lives and through this church, your church. For you are present in power and with a purpose. And so, Lord, give us the joy today of being Pentecostal Christians people who've been filled with the Holy Spirit, people who, by the Spirit, have been united to Jesus Christ and because of the Spirit have a wonderful reason for living. And we give you all the thanks and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, conclude this morning singing, uh, Creator Spirit, by whose aid the world's foundations first were laid. Come, dwell with us.